Dear Ernie, my most favorite single memory, utilizing your voice as a soundtrack, is hands down one afternoon in 87, during a late summer's charge towards the pennant at a home contest versus the Angels. The first of a doubleheader where the previous season's rookie sensation, one youngster Wally Joyner, faced a streaking veteran Doyle Alexander who had dropped none of his decisions since joining the Tigers prior to trade deadline. Then after balls, strikes, and your cool banter, the count had run full. And eight or so pitches later, Wally was somehow still swinging, when Doyle delivered a mean slider towards the outside corner. And again, the pesky kid connected for a towering blast down the line and right. Then seconds seemed like minutes as you described the ball in flight. High and hooking it had a chance, but landed east of the yellow pole. And without hesitation, you announced, too bad for Wally, he just missed a round tripper, but it seems a youngster from Bay City, Michigan is going home with a souvenir. Wally eventually went down swinging, but to me that didn't matter. What mattered was a kid from my hometown snagged the ball that jumped off his bat. And though at the time just nine years young, I still should have known better, that in fact you didn't know who caught the ball at all, but your voice made me believe. So much has changed since then, almost nothing is the same, except maybe the reverence that I have kept for the game. And though 12 years of Catholic schooling and a life full of blessings unnumbered has yet to fully convince me of the existence of the Lord whose word you lived your life by, 
I can't help but think that. Perhaps, Ernie, you had it right. And when it comes to faith and family, after decades of solid doubt, again your voice makes me believe. So know now in your new home, as you make more friends forever, until the last ball game I witness, your voice will always call the game. Rest in peace, old friend. Go Tigers. What you just heard was a letter, or more a poem in the shape of a letter, I suppose, that I wrote to Ernie Harwell in May of 2010, not long after I heard that he had died. This year will mark nine since the legendary sports broadcaster and on-air personality of the Detroit Tigers passed away. The call that he made in that game, it stuck with me for years. But here's the story. Baseball has long been a game of statistical analysis, ever since sports journalist Henry Chadwick developed the box score more than 160 years ago. Mr. Chadwick, as it turns out, is the man who made the decision to designate the letter K to represent a strikeout. Record keeping is as an important part of the game as pitching changes, pinch runners, peanuts, hot dogs, hecklers, the star-spangled banner, or anything else. Observing stats is a way one can be introduced to the rules of the game, get a better handle on them. It's also an avenue to learn which role each position player plays, how they could contribute to a win or to a defeat, how they've done so in the past and how likely they may be to do so in the future. This idea wasn't lost on us when we were young Tigers fans. It clicks very early on in our baseball fandom, this notion that numbers matter. We even saw it in our hobbies. The back sides of the baseball cards in our collections had entire careers spelled out for us. What these players could do with the bat or with their glove on the base paths or towing the rubber, even the rookies, the up-and-comers, or the prospects had some sort of numerical details listed, from their time in the minors or in college or even international play. They approached each new season with some sort of history behind them. On TV, when our heroes would take the mound or approach the plate, key stats would flash on the screen. Or, if on the radio, Ernie Harwell would just clue us in. Like, Blues leading, leading the American, American League second, second baseman in home runs with 21 RBIs with uh, 75. Swings and fouls it away. That'll be out of play. That walk that he picked up in the first inning was his 88th. He's never had that many in any one season prior to this one. Hits the ball pretty well against Baltimore this year. 10 for 28 for Lou. You get the idea. Keeping score wasn't just knowing how many runs had crossed the plate, as the term itself suggests. I mean, there's scoreboards for that. It was more like a job or a task, and it was performed dutifully and diligently by parents of players or reserve players themselves, by the skipper's assistants or unofficial assistants to the assistants, and by spectators. It was done in books with a pencil, transcribing, feverishly adding to a graph of filled diamonds, X'd boxes, numbers, hyphens, slashes, chicken scratch, basically, but making all of these marks as the events would unfold before your eyes. Then decoding all of that information back into the math. Accumulate, calculate, and you're left with the stats. A player's on-the-field worth spelled out in numbers. 
It's no surprise that, because of computers, the baseball-specific study of statistical analytics, or sabermetrics, has exploded in terms of notoriety and relevancy during more modern times. Not just Major League front office moneyball type stuff either, we're talking even typical everyday fans knowing their shit. It's really not too uncommon. It's also no surprise that, because of the internet, all of these algorithmic stat categories can easily be reduced to their origins by following just a few subsequent links on the web. It all comes back, eventually, to the box score. Henry Chadwick's inventive grid. The tally of balls, strikes, outs, hits, runs, errors. Who did what on what specific day, during what specific game? This information lifted directly from the scorecards. Every MLB box score ever recorded is now easily accessible. Talk about a rabbit hole. So wouldn't it be sweet, I thought, if I could find the official MLB box score of that memorable game? The game I heard Ernie call where the kid from Bay City caught that foul ball while a joiner's foul ball that he smacked deep into right while battling deep into an at-bat against Doyle Alexander. A digital record of that very at-bat couldn't be but a few clicks away. And hey, wouldn't it be even sweeter, I thought, if there was a digital audio file available, an actual audible record of that exact call, Ernie Harwell doing what he did best, making believers out of nine-year-olds with his voice. That would be sweet indeed. So, Tigers Baseball WJR. Hang on, everybody. Here's the ninth inning. The Tigers three outs away from becoming the Eastern Division champions. Jimmy Whalewander has come in to play third base. He'll be replacing Morrison. The police are ringing the stands, and the crowd is ready to break loose here at Tiger Stadium on this autumn afternoon. Well, unfortunately, this isn't that call. It's his voice, that voice, the same one that went along camping or on picnics or on road trips with, was at the cottage or at Nana and Papa's or just heard in the background during shift work by so many countless Michiganders for decades. But that call, the one that I recall, the one I specifically remember taking place on some sticky summer afternoon, Detroit versus California, first of a doubleheader, that call doesn't seem to exist at all. Because the game never took place. Wally Joyner did not in fact face Doyle Alexander in the first game of a doubleheader in 1987 at Tiger Stadium. As a matter of fact, there is no record of the two facing each other even once at any point in their major league careers. But I remember this so vividly. How can this be? I do have a theory, and I think it all still comes back to the box score. Not the official MLB box score of any game in particular, but perhaps one of the many box scores my neighborhood friends and I prepared ourselves on loosely for construction paper, handwritten summaries of what took place in one of our own games, in one of our own backyards. My brother and I didn't attend a ton of Tigers games when we were children. Dad was often working, and excursions to Tiger Stadium, although markedly more affordable than any present-day Comerica Park adventure, were still not necessarily in our family's entertainment budget. But when we did attend, we undoubtedly left the ballpark with souvenirs. Our collective memento of choice was a miniature wooden Detroit Tigers baseball bat. Between the neighborhood clan kids, we likely had dozens. And with said bats, 
and also a stash of commandeered Wiffle-style golf balls that our fathers had on hand to sharpen their short game skills with during weekends they weren't already hitting the links at the county course, we found ourselves just a few friends short of our very own scaled-down version of an MLB production. And this is how South End Mini Baseball League came to be. We would play mini baseball all summer, for many summers, entire mini seasons, and we would tally our own statistics during each game to keep record of our achievements. We transfer those official statistics, the accuracy of which was questionable at best, to the box scores. Then we would do the math, accumulate, calculate, and we were left with our stats. Very quickly, we made adjustments to our new game to make it a little bit more exciting. And of course, to pad our stat sheets a bit, we were a prideful bunch after all. We would add up to two or even six layers of Super 33 Plus electrical tape to the outside of the Wiffle Golf Balls to negate wind resistance and improve distance. Oftentimes half or as much to three quarters of the entire field was an automatic strike or even an out. We'd instate a bound rule that rendered a batter out if a fielder caught a ball cleanly on a bounce or on a roll. We opted even sometimes to play by dodgeball rules, where you could be picked off at any given moment if not already safe on base. Our rule changes and equipment upgrades paid off big time, and as a result, these games would just fly by. And these taped wiffle balls, they'd fly far, soaring over the exterior of our homes that would serve as our outfield walls, walls that we would coin the blue monster or the beige monster because our homes were blue and beige and a not so imaginative ode to Fenway Park's famed green monster. Many of our back or front yard ballpark shared characteristics with the sweetest stadiums in the game. Our neighbor Russell's home field even featured an in-play flagpole in center field, just like Tiger Stadium. I cannot imagine how many tiny black balls our fathers would routinely clean out of the gutters every spring, which reminds me, Dad, thanks for that. When we would play in-game, we wouldn't play as ourselves. I mean, our stats, those were ours, we owned them. What I mean was we would role-play each and every at-bat as if we were our heroes. And my hero was Wally Joyner. I loved him. I owned a ridiculous amount of his baseball cards. These cards weren't necessarily valuable or coveted at the time, but that didn't really matter. You see, he was my guy, my non-tiger. It occurs to me now that I likely made many ill-advised baseball card trades with my friends just to obtain another duplicate Wally Joyner. I collected every variety, all brands, Don Ross and their All-Stars and Diamond Kings, Fleer and all of that brand's offshoots, Fleer Mini, Leaf Canadian and Star Sticker, the action-packed 3D scene-shifting wizardry that was sports flicks, various limited edition promotional runs, and of course the classic, Tops. You know the one, the wood grain border with the golden cup in the lower right hand corner that was engraved All-Star Rookie? I had 17 of those. Just that specific card took up nearly two full sheets in my show-off binder, which wasn't that show-off of a binder at all, it was basically an ode to Tigers players of the past and present day, less than mint condition rookie cards of mediocre players in the game's history, and of course, Wally frickin' Joyner. But anyway... That voice that was in my head that called those at-bats as I would role-play as Wally Joyner, that voice was certainly the voice of the Tigers, Ernie Harwell. 
And when I narrowly missed my 22nd home run in the final game of South End Mini Baseball League's inaugural season, coincidentally the same amount of round trippers the real-life joiner hit in his MLB debut a year earlier, 22, believe me, I have way too many rookie cards that can prove it. That was a magical and memorable call. And perhaps, though I wasn't granted the opportunity to triumphantly round the makeshift carpet remnant bases in celebration of my monumental achievement, at least, in the memory that I was creating for myself, a kid from Bay City snagged my foul ball. Not a bad consolation. For me, that was definitely 100% Ernie Harwell's finest call of his storied career. Not the imaginary plate appearance at Tiger Stadium that I thought I heard on the radio, but the actual plate appearance that likely took place in my own backyard. Ernie Harwell was a legend in the real world, in his actual profession, but he was also a legend in his other job, as the on-air personality of my childhood imagination, and for that, I am eternally grateful. A little more than a month ago, news broke that Ernie's wife Lulu had passed away at the age of 99. It's been nine years since I wrote Ernie Harwell that letter. And for nine years, countless Michiganders have been missing the gift that was Ernie's voice in their lives. It's comforting to think, perhaps now, at least Lulu won't have to miss him anymore. Rest in eternal peace, both of you. And that's the story. And that'll do it. Lightning Licks Radio, episode one in the can, as they say in the broadcasting or podcasting biz. I am Gypsy Thief, member of Lightning Licks Final Preservation Society. The music and the story segment by Don Schlitz, Roy Ayers, original Dixieland Jazz Band, Electronic System, my man Josh Davis, a.k.a. Abraham Jefferson, John Prime, Gene Clark, Cannonball Adderley, and of course the voice of Ernie Harwell, rest in peace. We'll be back next month with more deep cuts and another story. Thanks for listening. Looking forward to sharing more sounds with you soon. Baseball is a president tossing out the first ball of the season and a pudgy schoolboy playing catch with his dad on a Mississippi farm. A tall, thin old man waving a scorecard from the corner of his dugout. That's baseball. So is a big, fat guy with a bulbous nose running home one of his 714 home runs. There's a man in Mobile who remembers that Hannes Wagner had a triple in Pittsburgh 46 years ago. That's baseball. So is a scout reporting that a 16-year-old Sandlot pitcher in Cheyenne is the coming Walter Johnson. Baseball is a spirited race of man against man, reflex against reflex of game of inches. Every skill is measured, every heroic, every failing, seen and cheered or booed, and then becomes a statistic. In baseball, democracy shines its clearest. The only race that matters is the race of the bag. The creed is a rule book and color, merely something to distinguish one team's uniform from another. Baseball is a rookie, his experience no bigger than the lump in his throat as he begins fulfillment of his dream. It's a veteran too. 
a tired old man of 35, hoping those aching muscles can pull him through another sweltering August and September. Nicknames of baseball names like Zeke and Pie and Kai Kai and Home Run and Cracker and Dizzy and Dazzy. Baseball is the clear, cool eyes of Rogers Hornsby, the flashing spikes of a Ty Cobb, and an overaged fixie named Rabbit Moranville. Baseball, just a game, as simple as a ball and bat, and yet as complex as the American spirit it symbolizes. It's a sport, a business, sometimes almost even religion. Why, the fairy tale of Willie Mays making a brilliant World Series catch and then dashing off to play stickball in the streets with his teenage pals. That's baseball. And so is the husky voice of a doomed Lou Gehrig saying, I consider myself the luckiest man on the face of this earth. Baseball is cigar smoke, hot roasted peanuts, ladies day, down in front, take me out the ball game, the seventh inning stretch, and the star spangled banner. Baseball is a man named Capanella, telling the nation's business leaders, you have to be a man to be a big leaguer, but you have to have a lot of little boy in you too. This is a game for America, this baseball, a game for boys and for men. And girls and women too.